From the healing heart of Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland comes the Dr. Nina Show with a message of hope for people struggling with binge eating. She helps listeners break free from emotional eating by identifying their hidden triggers and provides a path for healing without dieting or focusing on food. Dr. Nina inspires us to enjoy the full spectrum of human experience we all deserve to live. Hi there. Welcome to the Dr. Nina Show. I am your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin. I am a psychoanalyst specializing in eating disorders, and I am here to help you break free from binge eating, body shame, and diets that don't work. I want you to wake up and think about your day, not your diet. Um, The first step to a binge-free happy life is actually focusing on what's eating at you instead of focusing on what you are eating. So that is what I want you to look at and think about, and I am here to help you every step of the way. So my topic today are uh, 16 cognitive distortions. My topic is how to clear your mind of thoughts that don't serve you, and I have 16 um, different thought patterns that you might find really get in your way. So let's identify them because the first step is to identify what's going on and then you can challenge it. So consider the following thoughts. I ate two cookies, so I totally blew it. I might as well eat the whole box. If I work hard, I know I will reach my goals. When I lose weight, I'm going to be happier. I know those people don't like me. I only got that promotion because they feel sorry for me. I know, I know, I know what's going to happen. I know. And I can't believe I used the wrong word. Oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. People are going to think less of me. Okay, so all of those statements are different cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are patterns of thinking that seem real but are very inaccurate and lead to anxiety, depression, diminished self-esteem. And of course, that in turn leads to negative coping strategies like binge eating. Binge eating is not a disease. It is not an addiction. It is just a negative coping strategy. It's a coping strategy that hurts you as well as helps you in some way, but it hurts you more than it. It helps. So that is why it's really important to identify and challenge those distortions. So today I have 16 of them. Uh, Hopefully we'll get through all of them. I think we will. And then I'm going to give strategies on how to create change. Uh, I'll let you know if I'm able to open the phone lines. If you're watching on Instagram, as I live stream on Instagram every week as well, feel free to, to drop a comment in the comment box or a question. Okay, let's go. First of all, all or nothing thinking. This is called black and white thinking. And it distorts as an, um, it, it's a distortion that manifests as an inability or an unwillingness to, sh- to see the color in between black and white. I never liked the phrase shades of gray because gray is kind of depressing. But, and plus, for different reasons, we can't use the term shades of gray because it has a whole other connotation. So I like to think of, of it, it as the color in between black and white. But black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, you 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 think in terms of extremes. Everything is even is either fantastic or it's terrible. You're either perfect or you're a total failure. How does this show up with food? Well, if you've ever said anything to yourself like, um, oh, I ate two cookies, so the day is ruined. I might as well have the entire box. Uh, Or I've already blown it, so I might as well also have the ice cream, the pasta, and the pizza, and all the other things that are on my forbidden foods list. That is all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking. Um, Second is overgeneralization. So this distortion takes one instance or one example and generalizes it to an overall pattern. So if your boss corrects your work on a a project, you might think, oh my God, uh, they corrected my work. I'm doing a terrible job. 
And then you might feel like you're a failure. So you can see it has just a real snowball effect and it makes things worse and worse and worse. So overgeneralizing leads to negative thinking and decreased self-esteem based on just a couple of things that are happening to you. And then when you feel bad about yourself, of course, you're more likely to turn to food as a way of coping, comforting yourself, distracting yourself, all the things, right? So it's easy to jump to conclusions just based on one thing that happens, but it's important to remember one moment, one mistake even doesn't define you. So since overgeneralizing leads your thoughts down a dark path to negative self, self-esteem, you have to look at what, why each thing happened as just a thing that happened and not make it have meaning about you or your future. So it was a bad day, even not a bad life. It was one mistake. It doesn't mean you're a mistake. And also remind you yourself of all your successes. Often when something like this happens and all we see are the bad things that happen and then we, we, we calculate them. Oh, I made this mistake and I made that mistake last week and last year I made that mistake. And that's all that we see. And it's just mistake, mistake, mistake. Instead of, I also did this well and I did that well and I was successful in this or that. So it's really important to balance out overgeneralizing with remembering the times that you did things well and you felt good about yourself. Okay, mental filter, which kind of leads me into mental filter. So whereas overgeneralizing takes one bad situation and applies it to everything, the mental filter distortion focuses on um, a single negative situation and excludes everything that's positive. So an example is, uh, oh, wait, I'm just going to interrupt myself. Sheila is saying, I feel like I always have to atone for mistakes, and then I feel overwhelmed and binge. Yeah, atone. So Sheila, if a friend of yours made a mistake, would you say to her, like, you know, you must atone for your sin of making a mistake? Because atonement implies you've done something sinful as opposed to you did just something human. We all make mistakes, all of us, to one degree or another. Um, And then perhaps you feel overwhelmed because you've personalized the mistakes. More on that later. And then, of course, you can't simultaneously accuse yourself of, of, of having done something terrible and support yourself. Those things don't go together. So if you are accusing yourself of something bad and telling yourself you have to atone for your sin of the mistake, yeah, you're going to binge to get away from that mean voice. That makes sense. So instead, of course, you've got to have a more balanced perspective. We'll get to that later. Okay, so um, an example of mental filter. Imagine two people in a romantic relationship that's going really well. Yay them. But then as always happens in a relationship one of the partner one of the partners mentions something some issue that they have with the other person by the way that's called being in a healthy relationship right something that you know it's bothering them or they wish they would do differently or they've noticed or whatever if the second person has a mental filter they're going to take that single moment of perhaps criticism even Let's just say it's criticism. They're going to take that single moment of criticism and take it as evidence that the relationship is falling apart. It's never going to go anywhere. They thought it was good, but it's bad. There's all or nothing thinking. See, there's a lot of overlap with these. Then they're going to feel bad. Then they're going to use food to cope. It's a whole thing. So mental filter really means focusing on the one bad thing and filtering out all the good things, which of course makes you feel bad. When you feel bad, you're more likely to use food for comfort and distraction. Um, Disqualifying the positive. This is one I see all the time in my patients and my clients. So this is the flip side of mental filter. Disqualifying the positive acknowledges the positive experiences So yeah, 
yeah, I did that. But then it rejects the positive. So instead of embracing a compliment, you you disqualify it and, and negate it in some way. So an example is someone with a glowing review at work who decides that, yeah, they just got that really good review because of some kind of external factors. Other people weren't really doing as well. So that made them look good when really they're not that good. <sighs> Doesn't see anything good as an accurate reflection of your competency or your good enoughness. It sees it as some aberration. So this kind of thinking, of course, has really damaging consequences because it prevents you from accepting any good feelings about yourself when there's plenty of reason to think so. It negates anything positive. And so you feel bad about yourself. You feel bad about yourself. Guess what? You're going to go to food to cope, to comfort, and all of that. See why in each of these mental distortions, the feeling is that you feel bad and you feel bad often about yourself. And that leads to turning to food to get away from that bad feeling. And again, disqualifying the positive causes us to ignore the evidence that should make us feel good. So when we get compliments, when we are successful in our lives, instead of celebrating and embracing them, we push away any good feelings out of fear that they're not true. This way of thinking prevents us from seeing ourselves authentically and from recognizing how capable and competent we really are. Next is mind reading. Mind reading. Huh. Another one I see a lot of. Mind reading is an inaccurate belief that we can know what another person is thinking. Of course, it is possible to have some idea what people are thinking in some situations, depending on context. But this distortion really refers to jumping to conclusions. And those conclusions are always negative interpretations. So seeing a stranger with an unpleasant expression on their face and jumping to the conclusion that they see something negative about you would be an example of mind reading. Um, we rarely, when we use the defense or the distortion of mind reading, we rarely imagine that someone is thinking the best of us. We often imagine they are thinking the worst. So remember, you do not work for the psychic network. By the way, does the psychic network even still exist? <laughs> Maybe not. Because if it did, they could have told us a bunch of stuff. Like they could have warned us about COVID. I'm just saying. All right. I digress. So look, you never know what someone else is thinking. Often the mind that you think you are reading is your own. If you think the worst of yourself, it's easy to imagine that other people are thinking the worst of you too. When you identify and challenge your own negative self views, and when you come to actually like and accept yourself, flaws and all, because we all have them, then you'll find that any mind reading you might do could be positive. Maybe you'll think people are thinking the best instead of the worst. Um, related to this is the distortion of fortune telling. Fortune telling. That refers to the tendency of making conclusions and predictions based on very little evidence, but holding them as the absolute gospel truth. So one example of fortune telling is a single woman predicting that she will never find love. In fact, uh, recently, one of my friends told me this. She said, um, I haven't I haven't gotten married yet. So that means I'm never getting married. Like, no, you just haven't gotten married yet. It doesn't mean anything about the future. Fortune telling is taking what's happened up to that point in the past and projecting it into the future with absolute certainty. So an example of fortune telling is a single woman, like my friend, predicting that she will never find love or have a, have a committed relationship based only on the fact that she has not had it yet. 
there's simply no way for her to know how her life will turn out. But she sees this prediction, which is based on fear and past experience, as fact rather than one of several possible outcomes. You know, basically, fortune telling is, well, it hasn't happened yet, so I know it's not going to. And it's it's a phenomenon. We've all, you know, we've, by, by the way, we've all done some most of these mental distortions. It's just when they become predominant and fixed in your mind and when they affect your life and affect your self-esteem that they're really problematic. So fortune telling is predicting our future based on minimal evidence and treating that prediction as fact. So with my example of my friend, um, even though someone has yet to find their ideal partner, that does not mean she is not capable or worthy of meeting someone, of having an incredibly committed and happy relationship, which she deserves in the future. There are lots and lots of possibilities out there for us to explore. So instead of gloomily predicting the worst, embrace optimism. It could be the worst. It could be the best. Um, Question on Instagram. How about when our predictions are typically correct? Well, this is, um, this is part of a mental filter and it's, it's when we, when we have a narrative and we look for what fits the narrative. And so every time it happens, we say, see, it happened. It happened that time. So I'm always right. But we filter out all the times we were not correct. And so that, that, that way, you know, we have to challenge, well, what is the narrative? Really, our predictions are fears. And we predict it so that we feel like we're ahead of our fears. But then when sometimes it happens, we say, oh, our fears are correct. We are, in fact, psychic. We knew. I knew it. And then all the times we didn't know it, we forget conveniently. So that is my answer to that. Maybe look at the times when your predictions were not correct. Sometimes we're right. When we look, a a stopped clock is right twice a day. Doesn't mean it's right. It's right twice a day. Okay. Um, Magnification or minimization. This is actually sort of a two in one, two sides of the same coin. So this distortion exaggerates or minimize the importance of meaning or meaning of events or, or achievements. It either blows small things out of proportion and makes them big, magnifies them, or it makes important things very insignificant. So an excellent student who gets a bad grade or a less than perfect grade might magnify that disappointment and believe like, oh, she's not that smart after all. Or someone who wins an award might minimize the importance of that, of, of that award and just continue to believe that she doesn't really deserve it. And this was somehow uh, an anomaly and chalk success down to fooling them. Or maybe the competition wasn't that wasn't that big. Like they're like basically just to, it's a, it's a form of disqualifying the, the positive in a sense. But it's specifically about when something happens that you either make it make a good thing small or make a bad thing big. And sometimes a small misstep in life can feel like the biggest deal ever, while an amazing achievement can pass us by as if it's nothing special. Yeah, I did that. Next. So the reality is no slip up should be that big. And every win deserves celebration. Next is emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning refers to the belief that your emotions are factual. The idea is, well, I feel it. Therefore, it is true. This is what I feel, so that's what I know. Emotions can be powerful. Now, remember, 
emotions are are feelings. They're reactions to situations. They are not facts. They are just reactions to situations or their fears about something that might happen in the in the in the future. Um, so m- many of us, of course, have experienced the feeling that because we feel something so strongly, it must be true. But it's a cognitive distortion. And if you feel bad about yourself, you might conclude that there's something bad about you. In fact, if you're afraid, if you feel nervous about something, there must, in fact, be some kind of danger. If you get a bad feeling, you feel like you're psychic, you know it's true. It's just out there somewhere. It's like uh, if you are suspicious of your partner's fidelity, You conclude they must be cheating on you because you have this feeling rather than it's it's not true. You have no evidence. I mean, assuming you have no evidence. It's just a feeling. I feel it. It must be true. So it is really important to distinguish between the fear and the facts. Fear is about something that may or may not come true or be happening. Facts are what you know to be true in the present reality. And one of the ways that I find super helpful when you get into the I, my thoughts are true is, is to distinguish between what if thinking and what is thinking. So what if is fear about the future that causes you to have anxiety in the present. And what happens when you have anxiety in the present? Well, You're not going to scare yourself with what if thinking and simultaneously be able to soothe yourself. So that's where you head to the fridge or order DoorDash or whatever. So the, the key is to create what is thinking. What is, is, are the facts and what you know to be true in the present, which can be very reassuring. So the next time you have some kind of what if thinking, like what if, What if that happens? Or what if, what if, you know, what if this doesn't work out? Or what if, whatever the what if is, it's going to cause you anxiety. It's going to cause you some kind of anxiety in the present. Got to remember, wait a minute. What actually is happening? What do I know to be true? What are the facts? We can neutralize fear with facts. Next is should statements. Oh, this is a good one. This is a this is a very common one. So how often do you find yourself using the word should? Especially when it comes to food. You know, maybe you often find yourself thinking or saying something along the lines of, well, I I I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't eat that. I shouldn't have eaten that. I should be better at this. I should get a better job. I should be married by now. I should have X in the bank by now. You you get the idea. Should statements are what you tell yourself that you should do, that you ought to do, that you must do. And we might think that holding ourselves to some high standard is helpful as a way of pushing for self-improvement. But this is not how it goes. Uh, uh, Shooting on ourselves often leads us, in fact, often, no, always leads us down an unhelpful and harmful path. Because when we're occupied by what should be, what we think we should be doing instead, or we should not be doing, it just makes us feel guilty and frustrated. Um, Sheila is telling herself, I should know better, which is why I have to atone for binge eating. Well, Sheila, I'm wondering who told you that you should know better when you were a kid, because let's break down that, that sentence. Parents often say, well, you should have known better, or you should know better than to do that. You should have known better. Well, first of all, maybe you did, or maybe you didn't, but when we do things, that's, you should know better is logical. Why we do things is psychological. So it's not about what we know. There's some other reason for why we're doing something we don't want to do and why we're not doing something we want to do. Also, you should have known better or you should know better. It only focuses on the behavior. It doesn't focus on what is behind the behavior. 
So yeah, if you logically know, I shouldn't binge. It's not going to solve anything. And it's only going to make me feel bad about myself. Yeah. Who doesn't know that? Anyone who binges knows that. So why do we do it? Because again, we're not, we're not driven around by our logical minds. We are affected by our psychological minds, often what is hidden in our unconscious, sometimes not. And if you don't have a way of coping with soothing yourself, which by the way, I should know better, that's not soothing, Sheila. <laughs> soothing is, okay, what's going on with me? What do I need right now? What, what's, why is this affecting me? Let me think about this. Let me soothe myself with words. Let me express how I feel and validate. Yeah, I can understand why I feel this way because of this or that. How could I not? You know what? I'm not always going to be dealing with this. I'm not always going to feel this way. I'm finding new ways of coping and I, I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. Right? That may be more soothing than I should know better. Also, Usually, you know, usually this comes from childhood. Someone tells you, you should have known better. You should know better. And then we say that to ourselves when we're adults. Well, what, what, why do parents say this? I don't get it. Because really what they're saying is, you, that yeah, sounds much nicer, Sheila. Yeah. When we're nice to ourselves, we comfort ourselves with words, not with, not escape and abandon ourselves with binging. Um, so, when parents say this to kids, what they're basically accusing them is failing to be omniscient, all-knowing. You should know better. You should know everything, basically. And it's, again, focusing on the behavior and not what is motivating the behavior. Okay. You know, when, when I was in grad school, I had a professor who used to say, don't shit on yourself. I thought that was so clever of him. Turns out he didn't come up with it. It's a, it's an old saying. Don't, don't should on yourself. Um, because the word should only causes us to direct anxiety, sadness, anger, uh, distress towards ourselves. It only makes us feel bad about ourselves. And then when you feel bad about yourself, again, you cannot simultaneously make yourself feel bad about yourself and then make yourself feel good about yourself. So if you don't, if you don't have an ability to be kind to yourself, to nurture yourself, you're going to use food. So, okay. Moondance is saying, today I should stretch, walk the dog, wash the floor, clean out the fridge, reconcile accounts, return calls. Having a list is different from shooting on yourself because like, it depends on your attitude towards those things. Like if your attitude is, okay, these are the things that I need to do today. This is my list of to-dos. Let me just see. Let me do as much as I could. Obviously, I'm going to walk the dog because you got to walk the dog every day and you know, if I can stretch, if I can clean out the fridge, if I can return calls, you know, I'm going to get to that. That's different from kind of a slave driving. You should do this. And if you don't do that, you're going to be a failure and you're going to you're going to have failed and you're going to feel bad about yourself, which then makes you feel bad about yourself and you turn to food. So it's really the it, it's not just having a list of things that you need to do because we all have things we, we need to do. But shooting on yourself is making yourself feel bad about what, you know, about what you feel and what you want and what you don't want or what you're doing or what you're not doing. It's self-attacked. It's not just a list of the things you need to do. I hope that clarifies. Looks like it does. Okay. So instead of shooting on yourself, you got to be... Um, interested in your thoughts, interested in your emotions rather than judgmental. Instead of shooting on yourself, which is critical usually, it's just a way of being critical, be curious. The more you ask questions, you know, the more likely you have you are to find answers. When we when we criticize ourselves with, with should language or anything else, 
we feel bad, we shut down, we go to food. When we are curious, hmm, why did I want to go eat that whole pizza? Or why did I want to eat all that ice cream? Or why didn't I want to go and uh, go to the gym? Like, what's going on with me? What's going on with me? What am I thinking? What am I, what am I feeling? (laughs) Hi, Dr. Barb, who popped in quickly as she is at the gym. Good to see you. Hello. Um, If you're on Instagram, definitely check out Dr. Barb Educator account. She is amazing in what she's doing with her therapy dog, Carmel, and um, uh, education with kids. It's really just fantastic. So check her out. Okay. So the more you ask questions, the more likely your mind is going to come up with answers. If you say, hmm, what was going on with me? Then your mind might say, oh, yeah, I'm feeling this. Or I'm feeling that. This is bothering me. Then you're going to tend to that rather than attack yourself. Why didn't I do that? Right? All right. The, the next question is the next question. <laughs> I'm so used to answering questions on here. I, I went on autopilot. Okay. The next cognitive distortion is labeling and mislabeling. These are basically extreme forms of overgeneralizing. When we use one instance or experience as a basis for the future or to define ourselves. So if someone binges after a period of eating really healthily and taking care of themselves, and they might say, oh my God, now I'm a food addict. I'm totally out of control. I have no willpower, right? Labeling themselves. And they, they that means they're not taking into consideration any context of why they binged after a period of being healthy and feeling good about themselves. Why? This is where you ask questions. What was going on with me? Curiosity over criticism. You might say, hmm, let me use the food mood formula to figure out what it was. If I can't figure it out, what I what I chose to eat in that moment is going to tell me a lot about what's going on within. So, oh, I chose ice cream. That tells me I need comfort. Let me give myself some comfort. Oh, I ate a bunch of filling foods. That's pointing to Uh, something missing in my life, some hole, some void within. Let me think about what that is. Let me find new ways to fill it. Or maybe, oh, it's all about the crunch, right? Pretzels, crackers, chips, carrots, whatever. Hmm, maybe I have some form of anger. Maybe I'm feeling frustrated, annoyed, irritated, enraged. Let me look at that. Um, So another example of labeling and mislabeling is a good student who does poorly on a test and then labels herself an idiot. Oh, my God, I'm an idiot. Rather than allowing for the reality that sometimes we don't do as well as other times. Um, Sometimes we struggle. So this kind of labeling and mislabeling usually entails really highly charged, critical, super mean language. It makes us feel bad. These labels are usually bad. You're an idiot, we tell ourselves. I'm so so stupid. Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Yeah, then you feel what? You feel terrible. When you feel terrible, you're going to use food to escape your own mean voice. That's how it works. All right, next up is personalization. So this is a distortion that means taking everything personally and feeling responsible for bad things that happen, even when you know there is no logical reason why it should be about you. So as as an example, seeing you walk into a room and people are laughing and you think they're laughing at you. Or... Your friend is upset and you know logically you had nothing to do with it, but somehow you feel responsible like maybe you did. Things like that, where you take it personally. I I remember um, one time, I'm going to disguise this slightly, but I I had, oh, 
I had the worst cramps. <laughs> I had the worst cramps. And I like kind of, I was with a patient and I sort of shifted in my, in my chair. And, and, she, and this person said to me, I can tell that you, I can tell that you, you, you hate me and you, that this is mind reading, but I, and personalizing. Sometimes there's a lot of overlap. So I can tell you don't like me today. You're sick of me. You wish that I would leave. I said, what, what makes you think, what, 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 what makes you think that? And she said, well, the way that you're shifting in your chair and you have an expression of dis- displeasure on your face, I can tell you don't want to have anything to do with me. When actually it was just the worst cramps ever. So that's an example of how we, we, that's multiple cognitive distortions in one. And then when we believe our own thoughts, then we really, we believe it. So we think it's true. So she really did think that I wanted nothing to do with her, which of course brought up stuff from you know, her actual mother who wanted nothing to do with her. And, you know, it was actually, was very helpful, but, but if, if she were not talking to me and telling me this, and if I weren't interpreting it, she would have actually thought that I had these negative thoughts and feelings towards her personalizing. Okay, now we come to some fallacies. The first one is the control fallacy. So there are there are two kinds of control fallacies. The first is that we have absolutely no control over our lives and we are the victim of fate. And we have no say about what happens to us when things happen. It was fated. The other is that we are in complete control and therefore, we, were, we are responsible for everything that happens to us. Both beliefs are equally wrong. We do have some control over what happens to us. We have control over some aspects of our lives. But none of us has absolute control over everything. So coming to term with the fallacy of control is really difficult but necessary so that we can live a more balanced life and not feel so responsible or feel like we have no control, which by the way, then the no control can get displaced onto binging. I have no control over life. That is too scary. It is too scary to think I have no control over anything that happens to me. So what happens is we go like, I have no control over, over food, which we can you know, it ostensibly have control over. It's a displacement from a sense of helplessness over the over life to feeling helpless over food. The next one is the fallacy of fairness. Oh, I have such a hard time with this one. I will just share that. This is a tough one for me and it may be for you as well. So this cognitive distortion is based on the belief that life should be fair. So when we're faced with life's unfairness, it becomes extremely and inordinately upsetting. When life throws us for a loop, as it does, things happen that are unfair, it is so disheartening to realize that fairness doesn't always win the day. However, believing in an unrealistically fair world only creates frustration. So instead, we have to practice staying present and acknowledging situations as they are and working through the anger, the frustration, the helplessness of unfair situations instead of, again, displacing them, displacing those feelings onto food instead of like, oh, I'm so angry that the world is not fair. That can become so angry that I ate that so angry that I, I I should have known better and I weighed that. And now we're beating ourselves up, feeling bad, and then heading to food for comfort and distraction and to escape our own mean voices. But when we really come to terms with the fallacy of fairness and realize that, you know, here's what here's how I come to terms with it. We realize that Often the good things that happen in our lives are a result of choices that we make, decisions we make, how hard we work. 
And the bad things that happen to us are, are the result of either decisions that other people make or just wrong place, wrong time. So that for me, that helps take the edge off the fallacy of fairness. Again, the good things that happen in our lives are a result of the action and the decisions that we take. The bad things that happen often happen to us, you know, because of the decisions of other people. Sometimes, sometimes our own decisions, but, you know, not when, not with respect to the fallacy of fairness. Okay, now we have the fallacy of change. This involves expecting either others to change if we just pressure them enough, encourage them enough, point out reality enough. And sometimes this is this is the belief that our happiness and well-being depends on other people seeing the light, getting it, and making changes. So also, fallacy of change is, hey, if I just change my weight, or if I just change my job, or if I just change this in my life, everything will change. This fallacy of change is what makes the diet industry a $60 billion industry. They sell the idea that if you lose weight, and change your weight, your life will change. If you are struggling with shyness, you will become confident and outgoing. If you struggle with not having enough friends, you will be surrounded by people. If you are single, you will lose weight and boom, you will have a partner. The fallacy of change is if you change one thing in your life, everything will change. So any when then belief. When I do this, then I'll have that. That is the fallacy of change. So when I lose weight, I'll be happy. When my boyfriend stops gambling, our relationship will be solid. When I have kids, my life will have purpose. These are all examples of the fallacy of change. So instead, focus on accepting and enjoying the life you have in this moment as it is now and accept people as they are as well. Living realistically ultimately brings the most satisfaction and the most, you know, the biggest sense of well-being. Um, the 15th, we're almost at the end, 15th out of, out of 16th is the fallacy or the, you know, the, the cognitive distortion of always having to be right. Look, most of us have had the experience that we're discussing something with a, a friend, a family member, a coworker, whoever. And we, we become so focused on being right that we kind of lose sight of, of other perspectives. We just dig our heels in and we refuse to budge no matter how wrong we may be. Um, we do that sometimes. I'm totally guilty of it. Um, but when this is a common way of relating with others, when this is like a standard way of being in the world, then it is a cognitive distortion and it makes us inflexible, unwilling to compromise. We're afraid of, so, so why, why do, why do we dig in our heels? Why are we afraid to be wrong? Why do we always have to be right? Because there's something attached to being right and being wrong. So being wrong might feel like it means you're you're weak or stupid or something like that. So this kind of cognitive distortion can lead to conflict, can definitely damage your relationships, leaving you alone and frustrated. And then you might become, you might, if you're alone and frustrated, you might feel lonely. You might feel empty. You might fill that emptiness symbolically with food. And, um, y- you know, you might eat till it hurts. To to unconsciously express the pain that you're feeling. So there are a few reasons why we might fall into the trap of always needing to be right beyond what I just said. It can be a defense mechanism to protect our ego. If we're worried about being wrong, we might be worried about looking foolish or stupid. It can also be about control. But when we're too focused on being right, it blinds us to other possibilities and perspectives. So 
when you damage your relationships and you're alone, you know, you might also go to food to comfort yourself. So the next time you find yourself in an argument, take a step back, ask yourself if you're more concerned about being right or with resolving the issue at hand. If you are more focused on winning the argument, be aware of this way of thinking and you know, just try to change your perspective in the moment. It takes time as everything does, but it is worth it. All right. The last one. This is the other one I struggle with the, so much. This one is hard for me. It is called the heaven's reward fallacy. So this distortion is very familiar. It's, it's, it sounds like the fallacy of fairness. But the, the basic idea of the heaven's reward fallacy is that if you do everything right, if you work hard, if you live with integrity, that you will be rewarded in some way. That sacrifice and hard work will eventually pay off. Your dreams will come true. You will be rewarded and you will be happy. Sounds awesome, right? Okay. The reality, unfortunately, is that sometimes, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we sacrifice, no matter what we do right, we don't always achieve our goals. That is such a bummer. I know. It is painful and upsetting to recognize that, that that's the case. And that really can lead to disappointment, frustration, anger, and even depression, which of course, you can get angry with yourself for eating something instead of being angry at this the reality of life. We can get frustrated with ourselves for eating something instead of frustrated with that this is how life can be. We can get depressed and turn to food to make us happier, to lift us up, to um, just escape that depression. So you can see how for all of these 16 cognitive distortions that I talked about today, how each one of them makes you feel bad in some way. And then when we feel bad, we turn to food to feel better. When we identify and challenge the cognitive distortions, we find new ways of coping. And then we use those strategies instead of coping with eating. So again, these are cognitive distortions. How do we change them? We can't just think differently. We can't just change the thought. We can't drop the thought. We can't ignore them. We can't positive think them away. We can't gratitude them away. We cannot symbolically stuff them down or avoid them. The only way to challenge our thinking is to first identify our thoughts and then challenge them. So first, take a moment to consider which of, which of these cognitive distortions applies to you. Consider that belief. Take a moment to identify where this idea came from. Maybe when you were a kid, other people minimized your achievements and you eventually began to minimize them as well. Maybe others shamed you for being wrong. So you had to be right no matter what. Life can be chaotic and unpredictable. So you may have developed the idea that your hard work would be rewarded thereby giving yourself a sense of predictability and fairness. Then look for evidence that you're wrong. That might sound harsh, but it is really effective. If you have a tendency to be a mind reader, consider the times when you thought you knew what someone was thinking and you were wrong. Maybe you thought someone was judging you or they didn't like you and you found out you were totally wrong. So this... Looking for alternative evidence, looking at when you are wrong, that can really disrupt the distortion. It allows you to challenge it more effectively. Also, think about what you'd say to someone else in the same position. So if you minimize your achievements, if you disqualify the positive, what would you say to someone else who just achieved that or had, had acknowledgement of some kind? If you would not minimize or disqualify somebody else's achievements or sense of well-being, 
then take a moment to view yourself as you would anybody else in your life. Keep in mind, you learned these ways of thinking. All of these 16 cognitive distortions, you learn them. We're not born with them. We learn them. And the good news is that because we have what scientists call brain plasticity, such a fun term, which basically means we can learn new things, you can unlearn this and you can learn a new way. Because when you change your thoughts, you do change your life. And remember, practice makes progress. So that is the show for today. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Dr. Nina show. And you can also listen later on Apple podcasts or anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you soon. Bye for now. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further. Come take advantage of Dream Vision 7 Radio Network's unique in-house audiobook production, which includes benefits and bonuses from our radio station. Let our knowledgeable staff guide you to create the audiobook you've always dreamed of without breaking the bank. Check out our full one-stop service from A to Z, including the ACX process. Schedule a free consultation by calling 508-226-1723. That's 508-226-1723. Or go to dreamvision7radio.com. The Dr. Nina Show is now on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network every Tuesday, 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern Time. From the healing heart of Dr. Nina Sabelle Rockland comes a message of hope for people struggling with binge eating. She helps listeners break free from emotional eating by identifying the hidden triggers to binging and provides a path for healing without dieting or focusing on food. As she puts it, it's not what you're eating that's the real problem. It's what's eating at you. Be sure to tune in for diet-free strategies on how to outsmart emotional eating so you can stop thinking about food and start living your best and most happy life. Thank you for joining the Dr. Nina Show, heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern on Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Join Dr. Nina next time for more diet-free strategies on how to outsmart emotional eating so you can stop thinking about food and start living your best and most happy life. Find out more about Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland at drninainc.com. That's D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C.com. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow.